You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy, along with the associated websites One Step Off the Grid and the EV Focus the Driven. And joining me as usual is ITK Principal David Leach. David, um, I trust you are well with they hear birds singing in the background. Uh, I am well here in Sydney, Giles. It's been an interesting week and we've got a couple of great We interviews. do. Look, big batteries came to the forefront in many different ways this week. Uh, we've, um, we'll talk about the capacity investment scheme and the doubling of a firming auction by the New South Wales government later on in this program. But one of the other big announcements was the... Um, Waratah Super Battery getting a financial uh, lift, $500 million raised by BlackRock. Um, BlackRock is the largest asset manager in the world. You wonder why they need to raise more money, but um, obviously like getting partners in on their projects. And uh, this is a fascinating project. And we got the opportunity to speak to Charlie Reed, who's the head in Asia Pacific of these sort of asset management for BlackRock. And um, here's what Charlie had to say. Uh, Charlie Reid, thank you very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here, Giles. Thank you very much for having me. Um, BlackRock has raised 500 million Australian, or a bit more, I understand, um, for the Waratah Super Battery. Is that how much you're aiming for, or are you hoping for more? Um, so we were actually targeting originally um, $400 million of capital. So we were oversubscribed. I think that shows the weight of capital that is available for energy transition assets in, in Australia. Yeah. Um, what sort of rate of return are the can the investors look forward to? Because it's a it's the biggest battery of its type in the world. It's got quite a unique contract acting as a kind of a shock, shock absorber for the grid. Um, is it going to make money? Uh, it, it, it is going to make money. Um, so we see batteries like the Waratah Super Battery globally um, delivering pretty attractive risk just returns to investors who are early movers in this in this space. Can you just sort of describe what sort of rate of return that they might expect to get from this? Uh, so I can't talk about th this asset partic in, in particular. What, what I can talk about is what you generate, what we see investors looking for in terms of target returns globally for climate infrastructure assets. And what would um, that be? Where we see they targeting yields in the high single digits, given the, the high yield uh, environment at the moment, um, and returns in the, the low double digits. Okay. And it's interesting about the Waratah Super Battery. I mean, it does have a unique position on the grid there. It's going to be built at the former Manmora Coal Generator. That was sort of shuttled a few years ago. It's going to act as this kind of shock absorber, basically, meaning it can allow more capacity to be brought into the major load centres um, and it can basically sort of be there sort of responding to any sort of disruption to the grid just to make sure that the power stays on. That gives a, um, the market operator more confidence in, in, in managing those supplies and, and having that power coming in. Um, other batteries have done similar contracts, uh, the Hornsdale battery in South Australia, the Victoria Big battery in Victoria. The quantity of those payments that those batteries received has been released. Why haven't they been with the Waratah battery? Uh, so I be believe that those payments will be released in due course, um, but they, they haven't at this point. So I, oh, I believe that, that that will be made public in the future. 
Okay, and will you be making more most of your money from this contract, or will you be sort of also playing in the arbitrage and the sort of maybe the system services market? You've actually made the 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 battery much bigger than what was required for that particular contract. That's absolutely right. Um, so we have a seven hundred megawatt uh, contract with Transgrid, but it's an eight hundred and fifty megawatt system. Um, so throughout the course of the asset life, we'll be playing in the the merchant markets, power price arbitrage, FCAS services. Um, and then over time, we'll be looking to selectively uh, enter into new off-take agreements, be it with uh, uh, corporates or others. Oh, okay. And might this battery get bigger? Because every other battery seems to be getting bigger over time. Yes, yeah, so um, there is the ability to, to expand the site. So that is something that we will consider if we can find the right off-take agreements to match the capacity. And what sort of capacity might you have available at Manmora? Um, so over time, we look to expand the site by um, several hundred megawatt hours. Okay, okay. You've also got some other battery um, projects um, through Acacia Energy, which you bought last August. Um, I can think of a couple. Um, Ulinda Park in uh, in Queensland, part of a um, renewable energy hub there. Also the Arana battery uh, in Western New South Wales, I think next to Wellington or near, near Wellington. Uh, where are we up to with those projects? Yes, yeah, so um, we will be bringing those projects in particular to financial close over the coming nine months. Um, so we're currently in the procurement process for those those batteries. We will be looking to follow a similar funding program um, for, for those batteries. What you may have noted from the announcement is that equity is providing the full capital structure for Waratah. Uh, yes. So we aren't raising external debt. Uh, that's partly driven by the availability of equity, but also the high cost of debt at the moment. Uh, we'll be looking to pursue a, a similar funding strategy for those assets. Okay, and, and, and say for the Arana best, which I think is in within the uh, Central West um, Renewable Energy Zone, will that be sort of bidding? I mean, is it dependent on how you go with the various tenders that will be held by the government um, through the year, or will it just um, just be built anyway? It, it, it will be partly dependent on, on that. Now, what I would say is that we are seeing significant demand from corporates, uh, be it Gentellers or others, for uh, services provided by batteries. Um, so for each of our assets, we'll be looking for a range of different contracts. Uh, but I think that just on the energy transition in general, um, I think Moritar shows the importance of the, the, the government bodies providing long-term offtakes to help support these projects. We really seem to be at a tipping point now for battery storage. I mean, yours wasn't the only big announcement that was happening um, this week. We've got a doubling of the firm capacity by the New South Wales and federal governments um, announced um, on Thursday morning when we were recording this podcast. Um, we've got the capacity investment scheme being rolled out in South Australia and Victoria later this year. We're talking up to six gigawatts of new capacity. You know, Origin's talking about it's a raring battery, now a 12-hour battery. Um, it's um, w Where do you see sort of battery storage um, in, in in, in the great scheme of things? Yes, yeah, so for, for me, uh, battery storage has become the key enabling uh, technology of the energy trans transition. Uh, so you're right, batteries are getting cheaper over time, particularly as more batteries are being deployed in EVs. We see the supply crunch in batteries easing, lithium pricing having come down. And so batteries, both for large scale applications and small scale applications, um, play a much more prominent role in the energy transition. That's true in Australia. It's true globally. I think what's interesting for a business like Acacia is they are learning in probably the most important global market for batteries today, which is Australia. And they can then take those learnings into other international markets across Asia and, and beyond.
And it's interesting that sort of battery storage is getting longer duration now. We've had us focused on short-term batteries, you know, half an hour, one hour, one and a half hours, mostly to do with grid services. The Waratah battery itself is two hours. It's just basically on standby, as we mentioned before, a shock absorber, although there's obviously plenty of capacity to act as arbitrage. Where do you see batteries in terms of sort of storage length? Because there's a big sort of debate about that. At what point sort of, you know, batteries will provide sort of what's called, well, I don't know whether it's medium to long-term storage, storage and and, and and what point other sort of storage things will come in we've seen in the first tender in new south wales for instance a, an eight-hour battery win, win win a contract that's a very small one um where do you see that sort of market and that sort of storage duration sort of finishing up yeah so i think it's interesting to see how uh, batteries are evolving over time compared to other long duration storage technologies so uh, historically, you're absolutely right. Pretty much every battery you saw globally was being built at, at two hours. Um, within our portfolio, we see an increasing number now of, of four-hour batteries. I think in that two to four-hour space, uh, batteries will, will play a pretty unique role. Um, but we do see longer duration storage from batteries play a more prominent role as we move forward. And that's partly because batteries are becoming so much cheaper than other forms of uh, storage. And they can de be deployed at, at such speed. I think that's the important bit, isn't it? Because they are modular and they can be sort of built quite rapidly. I mean, how long will it take you to build the Waratah battery? I understand the first works have already started in the, in the month of May. When will it be completed? That's right. So we're on, on site um, and the, the project will be fully operational in early 2025. Um, now, that, that I would say is an ample schedule in order for a project of that size to be built. I think as, as we move forward in time, we will also see efficiencies in the construction process that will mean that these batteries can be built even quicker than that. Right, right. Look, just going back to the um, Arana base, and you're sort of talking about sort of, you know, partly dependent on the um, on, on the various tenders and the roadmap that's run, run out by the New South Wales Infra um, Infrastructure Roadmap. I'm just wondering, is that more, will that, because you're sort of talking about contracts with sort of gen, gen tailors and other things like that, will that sort of um, dependency more or less come down to whether you can sort of reserve your place on the grid as it were because I, I guess there's access rights to be sold and that's going to be important for for wind solar and storage projects to make sure that they can sort of reserve their place on the grid as it were yes yeah, so um access rights but also long-term stability of of cash flows um and it's no, no surprise to you giles that um when you look across the world which markets are attracting capital into their energy transition it's those that provide uh long-term uh, offtake arrangements. Now, as you mentioned, you can get those from, from corporates, but receiving government support in that area is a critical enabler for the energy transition. Right, yeah. BlackRock's a huge um, fund, global fund manager, I think the biggest in the world. Um, you obviously have a very global out, outlook. When you look at Australia and the Asia Pacific, um, how hard is it now for Australia to sort of compete for capital given you know, what we're hearing about the Inflation Reduction Act in the US and other incentives in, in Europe and, um, and, and you know, the, the sheer scale of things which are happening in China? Yes, yeah, so there is significant policy support globally um, and significant stimulus, as you say, and the Inflation Reduction Act has been well publicised. Now, what I would say is that if you look more broadly at the $200 trillion of capital that needs to go into the economy to reach net zero uh, to fund climate infrastructure, um, over half that will go into the Asia Pacific region. And I think actually the developments that are taking place in Australia and other Asian economies, uh, they may not quite have the scale of the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, but I would say that capital is increasingly drawn to Australia and the Asia Pacific 
as a key destination in the center. And when you, you talked about Australia um, before being, you know, one, one of the preeminent markets for battery storage, because I guess that sort of refers to the fact that we are charging down that sort of, um, if excuse the really bad pun, unintentional pun, um, this sort of renewable energy transition with wind and solar. Just how significant is Australia, what Australia is doing in terms of sort of the global context? Yes, so um, Australia, as you know, journeying from 90% fossil fuel historically to 82% renewables by, by 2030. I would say it's going through one of the most aggressive energy transitions globally. Um, now, this has been done before in other markets, and to give a ray of hope, I'd probably mention a market like New Zealand, which today is already at 84% renewables and is on track to reach 100% renewables by, by 2030. So I think the reason that the battery storage is so key in Australia is because of um, the speed uh, and the disruption of that energy transition. And so the, the team at Acacia, for example, um, they're gaining great knowledge in, in this market, which they can then export to, to other markets that will be looking to build out Waratah and equivalent projects. I'd also point out that New Zealand is probably largely hydro with a bit of geothermal. So I'm not sure if any other countries come quite down this path with as much sort of, you know, uh, what people call variable or intermittent wind and solar. Exactly. So New Zealand is fortunate from that perspective. And I think they are... Um, in New Zealand, you see a market that actually needs significant capital to get from 84% to 100%. So there are difficulties across each step of the, the journey. Uh, but Australia is definitely traveling at a, a speed which is largely unparalleled internationally. Yeah. So um, BlackRock has the Waratah Super Battery, looking at Alinda Park, looking at o, um, the Orana Battery. What else do you have planned in Australia in terms of storage or um, even just wind and solar projects? Yes, yeah, so um, beyond our assets with Acacia, um, we're also a significant shareholder in Jolt that's deploying electric vehicle charging infrastructure. For us, that's a key theme in Australia and, and globally. Uh, in terms of other renewables um, in Australia, um, we are keen to invest in particularly small scale solar and batteries, uh, like we're doing in New Zealand. Uh, and we're also reviewing the, the offshore wind market. Um, I would say as we look across Asia Pacific, at the moment, most of the investment is going into Taiwan, um, then into Korea, but Australia is emerging as one of the most important offshore wind markets. Any particular interest in the, in, in the offshore wind in Gippsland or in the Southern or the Hunter or the Illawarra zones? Have you um, announced anything on that? We, we haven't announced anything at this, at this point. We are reviewing opportunities in both uh, Victoria and New South Wales. And why small-scale solar and storage? Uh, we, we find it for two reasons. First of all, um, Building utility scale solar in the Australian market is challenging, particularly as it relates to connecting to the grid and potential curtailment issues. So we prefer from a risk perspective, small scale solar. Um, and also we tend to find that smaller assets, uh, given their fragmentation, provide a higher return for our investors. What sort of capacity are you looking at? So 10, 20, 30, 40 megawatts or? Even, even below. Um, oh, okay. So, you, can, uh, you, you could probably sort of dodge a few connection issues as well. Exactly. <laughs> and just uh, finally on Jolt, um, that's kind of interesting. Um, they're a, um, I think they're sort of focused mostly on sort of AC charging, sort of slower charging, sort of destination charging, sort of convenience, sort of scattered around the suburbs, shopping centres and things like that. What's the plans for that market? Uh, that's right. So um, Jolt, I would describe as medium charging in an urban, in an urban setting, combining EV charging with, with outdoor advertising. 
Um, so we're currently busy deploying assets um, uh, across Australia, in New Zealand, the UK. Uh, you may have seen that we announced a partnership with TELUS in Canada, uh, where we're deploying EV charging uh, across Canada, combined with outdoor advertising, free Wi-Fi, uh, and also the combination with 5G masks. Uh, so I think that uh, for the Australian market, we've got a pipeline of around 5,000 chargers, which we'll look to deploy over the coming years. And is that working, sort of advertising and, and free Wi-Fi charging and uh, combined with EV, EVs? It is. Um, so uh, at BlackRock, we talk about the 3Ds driving infrastructure. Um, so decarbonisation, uh, digitalization, and decentralization. I think Jolt is a great example of that. Uh, it's a great business model. Uh, it helps really with the early transition to EV charging when revenues are, are uncertain. The fact that we essentially subsidise the EV charging uh, from the revenues from outdoor advertising. Oh, fascinating. Charlie, look, thank you very much for your time. I'm fascinated. I'd, I'd probably love to sort of explore some more of those things, but um, we'll have you back on sometime in the future. I'm sure there'll be more big announcements from BlackRock. And um, Charlie, really thank you very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. Great. Thank you very much, Charles. I appreciate it. And that was Charlie Reed, uh, the uh, head in Asia Pacific for uh, BlackRock. Uh, and we've got another interview coming on later on this podcast with Thomas Nan. He's the co-founder and CEO of Allegro Energy, which is a flow battery, about 12 hour storage that has uh, been um, uh, commissioned by Origin to build a battery at the site of the Araring uh, coal generator. First of all, let's have a think about what BlackRock was saying, uh, David. I mean, look, big batteries. It, it, everything seems to be moving on batteries at the moment. Um, quite, quite a flurry of announcements this week. Uh, there are, uh, uh, and in general, over the past year, the investors seem to be and uh, uh, entrepreneurs seem to be becoming more convinced by batteries. And I suppose it's that breadth in the market. Uh, which is, you know, if one person makes a decision, even if it's Elon Musk, that's one thing. But when, when the crowd start uh, moving in that direction, then it's a sign that the, uh, the technology's got some legs. Not that you or I were ever in any doubt about that. Um, and you can see from the tone of that interview, and you always have to be cautious about when people talk about funding because they never talk about how tough it was or how bad it was or anything like yes. that, <laughs> only about the, how successful it is. Um, but nevertheless, the fact that it's all equity funded and that the tone of the conversation uh, does suggest that there's plenty of money around for batteries at the moment. And I think there would be plenty of money around for wind farms and things if only we'd built the transmission a bit earlier. Uh, you know, and uh, so elsewhere on the website, uh, there's quite a lot of commentary about the rise in electricity prices, um, uh, which we might talk about later. But um, home batteries certainly are going to get a leg up from the fact that consumers uh, are seeing higher prices, as well as community batteries, as well as utility batteries. The point is there are big price signals out there for investment at all levels. No, that's right, yeah. Um, a couple of other battery announcements this week um, included GenX, um, who have energised the Bodicum battery, which is the second big battery in Queensland in their first um, storage installation. They, of course, are building uh, pumped hydro, um, the Kidston pumped hydro project in the old gold mine. I did notice, um, just coming across the wires just before we recorded this podcast, David, that uh, GenX has raised um, $44 million I think, um, just to... Via a loan facility, I think, Giles, in part, for $35 million, and then 
you know, development funding agreement. But certainly um, GenX has done, I think, very, very well to start from a tiny little speculative company with next to nothing, a, a, you know, a dam in the middle of nowhere in outback Queensland. Uh, to a company that uh, looks like it's no, going exactly places. right. Now, the Capacity Investment Scheme, um, Chris Bowen um, and New South Wales Energy Minister Penny Sharp were standing up before the press this week to announce that the firming capacity, so this is part of this sort of infrastructure roadmap, so we've talked about the sort of the generation tenders and the long-duration storage tenders, which the first one was won by an um, eight-hour battery somewhere out sort of southwest um, WA, um, New South Wales, but no pumped hydro. Uh, there was a short-term need for three hundred, at least 300 80 megawatts of firming capacity, likely to be batteries or even demand management in and around the Sydney area to make sure that, that those demand things could be met once the rearing was closed. Now, it's going to be more than doubled from 380 to 930 megawatts. Looks like it's going to have the closure of Vales Point in mind as well, sort of trying to narrow the, um, the gap that had been identified by AEMO. And the way that Chris Bowen is selling this is that this is the first, there's going to be funded, the, the extra auction or the extra capacity is going to be funded by the federal government. And this is effectively the, the first part of the capacity investment scheme. And we're going to see it happen in South Australia and Victoria later on this year. Um, David, um, I guess this is progress. There's quite a lot of bits of uncertainty about uh, this already. You mentioned Vale's Point, uh, Giles. They've just appointed a new CEO, Richard Wrightson, uh, who was at AGL previously, and then he was at APA. Uh, I guess the fact that they've appointed a new CA, CEO could be interpreted as a fact that they've got no intention of closing Vale's Point uh, as, for as long as they can keep it running. That's as may be. Uh, the closure of origin of Araring will be a big enough uh, deal in itself in, in, the, um, in the first instance. But it would be nice to understand exactly how the uh, um, funding for the capacity investment scheme is actually working, whether the Fed... I, I didn't see that, Giles. Did you see the federal government's going to give money to the CEFC and the CEFC is going to give money to the New South Wales government? Or did you see exactly the details of how no, this I didn't. is going to work? No, <laughs> I guess that's, uh, that, that's part of the, uh, part of the uh, mystery. And I guess we'll sort of find out um, more. And it's interesting, the fact that they've already gone through the first stage of that auction, which is 380 megawatts, and then is going to be expanded, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing, to 930 megawatts. Now, whether that's part of that first auction, I'm not really too sure. So. <laughs> It's not the not the megawatts, and again, I apologise. I've been a little distracted this week. Did you see the duration of that storage? Or it has to be at least, I think, uh, eight no, hours. No, this was I, actually I a bit different. This was actually a minimum two hours. They're looking for a specific need and a specific shortfall that was identified by AEMO. So at least when that tender started, 380 megawatts, it was identified as at least two hours, which is why we thought that basically it was going to be for batteries and uh, or demand management. Now, since its expansion, interestingly, the actual duration has not been um, repeated. So I'm yet to find out whether it's going to remain at at least two hours or whether it's now a um, another descriptor. But um, I would have thought if it's any longer, then that may sort of cause a few of the people who put their hands up in the first place to rethink it. I think the point is that batteries are making ground against pumped hydro. We've seen that in the initial tender in, in, in New South Wales. Uh, in Queensland, though, they're still going very big on Barumba, and probably there's a lot of reasons for that. But um, Barumba has, as you might expect from such a big pumped hydro project, there are a lot of environmental considerations about what happens to surrounding wetland areas and so on and the affected land by the dams. So, I mean, you just can't avoid that discussion in, in big dam projects. 
and and the cost of it is so high that it, again it just makes batteries look like a very attractive alternative as we're seeing in West Australia where AEMO has gone with a battery uh, already and here in New South Wales as well mm. so I guess what we kind of expected when we looked at the technology it started a few years ago that once you went past two hours batteries had no opportunity and pump tyro was incredibly cheap for the incremental storage uh, to the point now where it looks like even in four and eight hour markets that batteries are going to be increasingly competitive and the role for pumped hydro um, is more questionable in, in, in my well, opinion. Well, let's even talk about not just four or eight hour batteries, let's talk about 12 hour batteries. Now, Origin announced this week that it had invested $4 million for a 5% stake in a relatively new company, Allegro Energy. It is the developer of um, unique, uh, what's called redox flow batteries. It's saying it can build batteries at 12 hour storage. Um, uh, Origin has decided to trial a small module at the Araring coal generator and has more or less committed, depending on the success of that first trial, to build a 5 megawatt 12 hour battery um, either at Araring or somewhere nearby. Uh, we caught up with the founder, the co founder, and CEO of Allegro Energy, Thomas Nan, and this is what um, he had to say. Uh, Professor Th Thomas Nan, uh, thank you very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Fascinating announcement by Origin Energy today, or this week, sorry, um, building a, uh, trialing your technology uh, with the idea of building a 12-hour battery, which can either be built at Araring itself or near mm. Araring, Australia's largest coal generator. Um, I guess that depends on available space and um, how many chimneys they're pulling down at the time that it's installed. Um, Thomas, mm. Tell us about this technology. It's a water-based redox flow battery. Um, can you actually tell us what that means? Yeah, so um, I think most people are not really familiar with flow batteries. However, it's actually uh, an old technology. They, they, this type of battery has been invented by NASA in the 70s. And um, interestingly, the most common um, variation of that technology is called a vanadium redox flow battery and that has been in, invented here in Australia at the University of New South Wales in the 80s. So it's it's not brand new um, but it's not uh, very common. Now the reason why this type of battery um, got a lot of attention more recently is because it's really really well suited for long duration storage. Um, where lithium-ion batteries, as wonderful as they are, are, are not that great. Um, so, so do you want me to explain a little bit how that works? Yeah, no, and, please do. Yes, and yeah. I'm, I'm fascinated. And just sort of, you mentioned vanadium flow batteries, and we've also heard of zinc bromine flow batteries. Mm -hmm. um, yours, I think, um, well, you probably explained this in your, um, as you sort of go through the details, but can it be applied to any particular chemistry, be it vanadium, I guess, zinc bromine, or anything else? Well, it could, but that's not what we are doing. Okay. So we, we, we took a, a very different approach, and I'm happy to talk about that in a minute. But, but before I do that, is it okay if I just uh, paint the picture a little bit how these batteries work? Unlike, Please uh, do. Please do. Yeah. Yes. I think most people are really familiar with lithium-ion batteries. And um, as you know, they, they come in this AA or AAA format, and they are a little cylindrical package. And the whole chemistry and magic happens inside that little cylinder. And now, um, the, 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 so batteries, um, 
I'd, I'd like to, 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 to use a picture of a car. So in a car you've got an engine and the tank and um, the, the, the engine of the car is pretty, pretty much um, responsible for how fast you can go, how fast you can accelerate and the tank where the fuel is being stored uh, determines how far you, you can go. Now in technical terms that is called power and energy. Now in the classical lithium-ion batteries or pretty much any battery in that format, this ratio is fixed because you can get only that much, um, if I paraphrase it's fuel in, um, in, in quotation marks, into the battery. So once that's used up, it, 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 it's running, the battery is running flat uh, pretty much. So, and in, in a lithium-ion battery, kind of this, this ratio typically allows a duration of four hours. Now, redox flow batteries or flow batteries, um, these two me um, metrics are separate. So, so in a flow battery, you've got the equivalent of the engine of a car, where where all the chemistry and the and the storage happens. Uh, but you, you can store um, the and I, I use this picture now and, and call it fuel, which is not the correct technical term, but call it fuel externally, and that means that. Um, in flow batteries, there is a separation between the power and the energy part. And what that means in practice is that you, in this type of battery, you can extend the duration of the storage very easily without having to change um, the, the power. So this, this ratio of power and energy is not fixed in these batteries. And that is the reason why um, they they are so well suited for long duration storage does that make sense look it does yes i'm, I'm kind of interested then what is the breakthrough that you guys have achieved that's allowed yes. this to actually sort okay. of happen yeah i'm coming to that now <laughs> um so uh, so the inner flow battery as the name suggests um the um the, the, the medium is liquid so it flows and um unlike in 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 things like this in my batteries and um and in and this medium is called an electrolyte and in this electrolyte um, molecules are being dissolved um, that then store this this energy and um, what we have invented is a new type of electrolyte so so our, our ip resides in that liquid and that is this water-based electrolyte now um, you you mentioned zinc bromide and vanadium batteries before and i'm, I'm responding to that question now um, uh, they 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 all require a certain type of electrolyte or um, now how the way we are different is that that our electrolyte is extremely versatile so in theory you could use vanadium and synchronomide in that electrolyte but that's not what we are doing so we took a, a very different approach so um rather than locking in um, a, a certain chemistry and work around that what we what we did in the past is that we were screening um, hundreds of different uh, types of chemistries and then we are selecting the ones that performed best with, without showing many of the problems that other battery types have in the first place hmm. And so the deal with um, Origin, I mean, it's, it's interesting that you've got such a big company at such an important and iconic site, I mean, it's the, it's, it's the um, country's biggest coal generator, is now going to trial, I think, first of all, a, a simple module, 100 kilowatt mm -hmm. and 800 kilowatt hours, an eight hour battery, and then moved into 12 hours. Um, so this is the first commercial deployment of your technology. 
That's correct. Yes, mm. it must be quite gratifying to sort of have such a big well, company. It's, it, yeah, it, it's really a big step for us, and um, I'm, I'm very pleased about that. That Origin is doing that. Yeah. What, what sort of due diligence have they done, if you don't mind me asking? Oh, <laughs> a lot. <laughs> so, so of, of course, it it all started with technical due diligence, and um, and 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 actually, they they wanted to see see that it works. So they 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 came to our facilities, and we showed them a smaller battery and and how it works, and they they got experts in and all this sort of stuff. Um, Mm. Yeah, I think that that was the main point. And 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 after after they decided they wanted to trial, this is was ma mainly about the terms how we do that. Right, twelve hour batteries is fascinating because it seems to be in that part of the market which has been very hard to do. As you sort of say, lithium ion batteries struggle beyond four hours. Although we are hearing about eight hour batteries, but I suppose that's a bit of a struggle to get the return on investment with, with that amount of storage. Um, pumped hydro is proving very hard to get built because of it's a civil engineering thing, mm. delays, costs and things like that. 12 hours just seems to fit very nicely into sort of this, I, I think we discussed yesterday, um, you know, in this overnight or sort of daily sort of storage yeah. needs. Exactly, absolutely. And, and the reason why um, flow batteries are such an elegant solution for that is, is because you can scale the duration very easily by just increasing the size of, of the tanks. So, and, and these are real tanks where, where these electrolytes are being stored. And so could that go beyond 12 hours? Is, is 12 hours like the sweet spot or could it go even oh, longer? Oh, sure. You, you can go longer. Right. Um, okay. you just, it, 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 it's, it's literally a tank where you need to increase the volume of the tank and put more electrolyte in. Okay. So what does it look like then? We published pictures, I think, from your website, basically of containers with the Allegro brand name on it. And I presume that's mm -hmm. where the actual sort of the, 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 the cells are. Um, but is that where the tanks are going to be? Or is that... Um, what's um, no, the tanks will be external. So 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 our batteries, we, we build them in a containerized format. And um, so what's going into the container is um, the, the, we call that the stacks. This is kind of the centerpiece um, of, of the, of these batteries and things like the electronics and the inverters uh, and all of that and sensors, um, but the tanks will be external. Okay, okay. And um, what about cost? Is it going to be cheaper than other forms of storage of this duration or is it just going to be valuable because it's modular and quick to build? Well, th this is not an easy question to answer because there uh, they're, they're different variations of cost Oh, uh, sorry, that was just some email that arrived. Um, so uh, so the, there is the upfront cost or the capex that you need to invest to build a battery. Um, but there are also more sophisticated um, um, cost metrics like the levelized cost of storage um, that take into consideration um, the the number of of times you can charge and discharge the batteries and the depths of discharge and all of these things so um in general um what i can say is so cost um, was one of the selection one of the most important selection criteria um, for us when we did this screening process that i mentioned earlier and um, we very deliberately um, only looked at materials um, that are um, already available at very large scale. So what that means is um, we, we don't have to build a chemical factory to make some 
some fancy molecule for our battery. We can buy everything off the shelf pretty much. Um, and and that is that is a, a huge cost advantage uh, that we are having um, over many other approaches. Mm. And you've also sort of um, talked about plans to build a gigafactory, which I think sort of the battery industry is named for a factory. <laughs> um, but um, obviously, a you big plan one. To, yes. yes. <laughs> um, um, how, how big are you planning it, and where are you uh, where are you going to where are you going to put it? Yeah, so, so just, just a bit of context around that. So, um, so, so some of the listeners might have um, uh, read this McKinsey study that has been published earlier this year um, about long-duration energy storage. And what that study showed is that the demand and the need for uh, this storage type in, in, in that time frame, let's say overnight to a couple of days, is just enormous. So in that study, they estimate it uh, that that worldwide there is a demand of about 140 terawatt hours. And don't even ask me how many zeros that are. Um, the um, of, of, of this long duration storage. So what, what that means is we, we realized pretty early that it's really a case of go big or go home. So um, small kilowatt or even megawatt um, batteries will just not meet the need. And uh, that is why we realized, okay, we have to, we have to build many of these batteries and we have to aim for a Giga factories or giga as in gigawatt hours as quickly as we can. And our plan is that um, uh, we build that in Australia um, and uh, uh, ideally locally somewhere, and we, we will do it as fast as we can. So there could be no limit then on the size of an individual battery installation, you know, say it's at the Raring or you know, the site of another sort of coal or fossil fuel generator in terms of sort of, you know, hundreds of megawatts of capacity or even a gigawatt capacity, you know, huge 12 hour battery. Um, no limit is a, is a, is a, big, a big claim. <laughs> so, so. <laughs> Uh, everything has limits, um, but, but but what we need from the from the, uh, what we know from the industry is that there is just a huge demand. So so um, the, if, to give you an example, so um, the you might be familiar with Beyond Zero Emission (BZE), the think tank. Um, yes, of course. And they yeah, of course. <laughs> and, and 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 they published a study um, about the Hunter region where we are located, and they estimate the the the, the short term need uh, of about uh, twenty five gigawatt hours in the next ten years or so, um, and and that is, yeah. That's a big chunk, and at the moment, uh, I think no, no one can actually manufacture that many batteries. Mm. That so this is, but this sort of twelve-hour storage—I mean, it kind of is that sort of missing link, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's what we need to get to very high shares of renewable. I mean, to get to one hundred percent renewable, you probably need yeah. seasonal storage and things like that, and sort of pumped hydro and the snowy mm. two point zeros of the world and the Baramba dams. But really, to get to very high levels of renewables and still with a bit of sort of existing. You know, backup generators and things like that. You know, these these sort of these long duration batteries are going to be the key, aren't they? Uh, absolutely, exactly. The problem still is that the sun doesn't shine at night, and <laughs> we can fix that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a challenge for another day. Yes, exactly, exactly. So, so tell me how uh, how where did this technology come from? I mean, who's developed it? Which universities were involved? Which which who were the bright sparks behind this? Yeah, well, I don't want to praise myself too much, um, but it, they, they, that has, of course, a long history. Um, 
So if I, if I go back to the beginning, I think the, the start of this whole journey is something like 12, 13 years ago now when um, so personally, I've, I've always been felt very passionate about um, mitigating climate change and renewable energy and this sort of thing. And I was dabbling in all sorts of things. Um, but but as I said, more than 10 years ago now, I, I, I had this I don't want to call it an epiphany, but but uh, I, I realized that the, the big missing link in transitioning to renewables is not so much generating renewable energy. And we can see that actually right now already. So the spot price um, on a sunny day um, of electricity is, is sometimes negative because of all of the uh, um, rooftop solar. Um, but the big challenge really is um, matching supply and demand and also firming the grid. And the only way to do that is with, with storage and actually long duration storage. So what I did at the time um, was that I, I told my team really to focus completely on storage and take take a new approach. Because the second thing that I realized was that the technology to do that and to transition to renewables doesn't exist yet. And uh, we and and I'm kind of an adventurous person. I like disruptive things rather than incremental things. So so I really challenged my team to 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 have a very open mind and to and, and to to explore new and different approaches and that's what we did and then um, about six seven years ago we, we made this breakthrough discovery with a new electrolyte and then there was a lot of research and R&D and in the end um, uh, the we patented um, or filed a patent application um, on, on this new type of electrolyte and um, and, and started the electro journey. And that was actually not in Australia, I have to admit, that was at the Victoria University of Wellington in New Zealand. Oh, okay, interesting. And, um, and, and then you sort of brought it across the, across the ditches that were to, to, to Newcastle. Yeah, so we, we moved to Newcastle some years ago. Uh, now we're here. Oh, well, fantastic. And do you have any other takers for this technology? I mean, Origin Energy have obviously bought a 5% stake in your company, I think for $4 million. So that gives some sort of idea about the valuation or the potential valuation um, of the company, which is um, really interesting. Um, any other people putting their hands up and curious about your technology? Yeah, we, we're talking with lots of people, actually. And, and as I mentioned, this so BZE and the McKinsey report, they, they all show there is just an a huge, a huge demand for this type of storage. And as I mentioned earlier, there, there's not really much out there. there. There's not really an easy solution or easy fix for that. So, so we're talking with with um, with big utilities like like Origin. Um, of course, then there are mining companies, big industries that are energy intensive. Um, things like data centers. So. Um, all of them need need storage, like, uh, long duration storage sooner yeah. or later. Yeah, and look, one thing we haven't touched on, we should before we sort of finish, is the fact that um, it's uh, the, the safety and the ability to recycle these batteries. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so um, with our batteries, we can recycle them 100%, um, not a problem at all. Uh, they are very modular. Um, in, in terms of safety, um, I would, yeah, I, I think I can confidently say that, that our systems are in comparison much less ha hazardous than others. Um, so they are not highly acidic, for example, they've got roughly the acidity of, of, um, of root juice. Um, but I don't recommend to drink the electrolyte. <laughs> um, and they're not flammable. Yeah, what else? 
Um, yes, well, that's probably accounts for most of this, all of the mm. safety aspects. Yeah. Well, look, um, you hope to have this pilot plant up at Araring in the next um, six months, is that right? I know it's a bit longer than that. Well, it, it will probably be about a year before we will um, move um, the, this uh, first battery to Araring. Okay, well, we look forward to hearing more about your progress and um, fascinating to see this technology which could fill a very important gap in, um, in this energy transition. So, uh, Professor Thomas Nand, thank you very much for joining the uh, Energy Insiders podcast. Yeah, thanks, Charles. It was a pleasure. That was Thomas Nand from uh, Allegro Energy. Um, David, um, still very early days in um, this particular company and its particular technology. Um, I've got to say that Origin hasn't had a sort of a fantastic run with its investments. If you look back to Sliver and Solar PV, which it sort of made a big, had to write about $150 million at least off that. Um, and also its big geothermal um, hopes with uh, geodynamics, interestingly, the son of Geodynamics or, um, is Renew Energy, and that's the company that owns most of Allegro Energy, so the connections are still strong there. Um, if 12-hour batteries do work with these flow batteries, um, incredibly scalable, um, no toxic um, components, fully recyclable, that's going to punch an even bigger hole in the pumped hydro market. Well, it is. Um, flow batteries are not a new thing. They've, the vanadium flow battery was a very big deal about a decade ago and then kind of hasn't been able to make, has seemed to have been in the doldrums for a while. But I recently went to a presentation uh, from the University of New South Wales, which showed that it's seemingly making a quite a lot of progress. So I think we're all hopeful that flow batteries can be a big deal. There are also questions about whether they can do all the things that chemical, that um, lithium batteries can do in terms of speed of response, you know, for frequency control and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, um, and of course, they're never going to have the consumer form factor uh, appeal that, you know, like a Tesla Powerwall has, or at least they so far haven't if you look at uh, Redflow and the like. Uh, so, so I think it's just a question of uh, watching the space. Um, I do expect that battery costs of all kinds are going to continue to come down. I mean, that's one of the themes. We certainly haven't seen the end of the technology development around lithium. You know, it's at the moment we've got um, uh, lithium iron phosphate and lithium nickel cobalt sort of uh, conventional batteries. And then we're working, Tesla, uh, Tesla are working on uh, bigger cells. Um, and we're trying to get the dendrites, that's the damage that's caused uh, on, on the um, uh, anodes and cathodes by, by the little pitting that occurs, trying to get rid of that. And then we want to move on to maybe lithium air batteries or solid state lithium batteries. I mean, the point is that in another 20 years, I expect uh, back storage technology, manufactured storage technology to be way cheaper than it is today. Um, in the meantime, we've just got to get through these high electricity prices while we're on this journey. And it, we wouldn't, it would all be a lot easier for a lot of us if we built the transmission a few years ago. You know, uh, in your note about electricity prices, you pointed to the like $3 a day of uh, um, network charges that essential energy cha that's changing. So, you know, what we're seeing is a um, change in the pricing structure for retail electricity, uh, where we're moving away from more usage costs to more costs of being connected. Uh, and that will again force, I think, a response uh, from consumers into, into how they deal with that. But I guess the point is, if we had more transmission, we'd have more wind and solar, 
there'd be more competition in the generation market and, um, and, and prices would be lower. So, you know, the fault is in the sense of not having built the transmission earlier. And I guess the sort of cynic in me wants to say the same sort of people that don't want to have transmission on their property because it doesn't look good, the same people will be complaining in regional New South Wales about how much it costs to be connected to the electricity exactly system. Right, yeah. David, look, I think um, with those two interviews and um, our good discussion in the back, I think that might be it for this week. Um, thank you very much both to Charlie Reed from uh, BlackRock and from Thomas Nand uh, from Allego Energy. Um, also to our sponsors, of course, Pylon and Evergen, and to you, David. Um, I hope you recover from your eventful week, and um, we'll thank you for the listeners out there. And we'll be back this time uh, next week with another episode of Energy Insiders. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use, solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.